The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us, and you can follow live tweeting of the show at hashtag BigBeaconRadio. This first segment is sponsored by the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at WholeNewEngineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore, and we're uh, fortunate to be joined today by the co-author of that book, Mark Somerville from uh, Olin College. Mark, welcome back to the show. Thanks a lot, Dave. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you back, and and uh, of course, you've been on the show before, and some of our listeners... Uh, know about you. They can find out more about you on the program page. But um, as you know, we like to um, let our listeners get to know us a little bit on the show. And so what one or two things would you like our listeners to know about you before we get started today? Well, I guess I'll just, I'll just highlight that I'm a, I'm a faculty member at Olin College and was part of the team that started this institution. And I'm really excited about the fact that I'm getting to spend time also working with other institutions and Trying to trying to build places that are really interested in transforming engineering education and transforming education more broadly. So, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, and and we're glad to have you. And actually, that uh, are a lot of people uh, listening to the program are very interested in what's going on at Olin. Olin, uh, what uh, is this the seventeenth year, or something like that? Uh, what your tenth or eleventh? How many you just had? Uh, well, let's see. We just we just graduated the class of 2016, and our so that was our tenth graduating class. Our yep. first graduating class was 2006. So, yep. It's, and so what's we're in, uh, we're in adolescence uh, now? I guess. Yeah. So you're uh, oh, getting into those uh, teenage years here. So we'll we'll see how that works out. But uh, what's uh, I know that uh, Olin's constantly trying to reinvent itself. Anything uh, new on the Olin front in terms of uh, uh, things that our listeners would be interested in? Oh, we've been. I think we've been having um, some really uh, fun and interesting uh, experiments in the curricular space. We're really trying to to be a lot more intentional about how we can create uh, spaces for experimentation in the curriculum, and so that's that's going well and is exciting and particularly exciting to to kind of reinvigorate some of the student involvement in curricular innovation that really was our, our hallmark early on and that I think we maybe didn't have quite as much of in the in our sort of middle middle years there. So 
I'd say that's probably one of the things I'm excited about. Yeah, well, it's a lot to uh, get a school started and off and running. And, and of course, uh, people read the story in a whole new engineer. They know that um, the school started almost by accident with a partnership between uh, partners, students who um, – who had applied to be in the first class when the construction schedule was interrupted, and so what? Now you're, you've kind of returned to those those roots of intentionally involving students in curricular plans, is what I'm hearing. Yeah, that's right. It was very much a uh, it was a happenstance that we ended up doing that early on, and it turned out to be about the best thing imaginable for the culture and the curriculum of the institution. And this summer, we've had the opportunity to sort of start doing that again by involving students in doing curriculum design and curriculum redesign. And that's been, I've been heavily involved in that. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And that's, that's great. And, and along those lines is, you know, a big theme of our book was uh, this notion of unleashing as central to higher education in a creative era. I mean, it was, it's fine to have people who do what they're told in an era where it's about hierarchy and command and control, but where we want people to invent the next great thing, it's important for them to be able to stand up on their own and, and uh, be confident to do things uh, that maybe face a little uh, criticism or resistance. So, um, and of course you get the chance uh, at Olin and elsewhere to see a lot of unleashing. What, uh, what unleashing experiences have you witnessed in yourself or others uh, since the last time we had you on the show? Well, I guess the, the first one that comes to mind is actually this experience working with these students this summer. They were trying to um, be part of inventing a piece of curriculum for a, for a part of the curriculum they hadn't even gotten to yet, so they were yes. helping to design something that they they didn't know about and shouldn't shouldn't have known about. And their sort of initial approach to that was pretty hesitant, and they were looking to me a lot to tell them what to do and to tell them whether what they were doing was all right. And by the end of the summer, they were just off to the races and doing really exciting things on their own and reimagining the space and reimagining what the student experience was going to be like and, you know, much more kind of coming back every other day or so and saying, and now I've done this and I've done this, and what do you think about that? And so it was really exciting to see them go through that transition from always wanting to know if what they were doing was right to much more kind of collaborators excited about trying to figure out how to, what, how to make what they were doing better. And, and I'm, I'm always interested in the time constant. And of course, it varies. Sometimes when you're on a very intense experience, it can be quite short. Um, in the book, we I tell the story of the iFoundry unleashing, and, and it was about seven, eight weeks uh, on kind of a weekly meeting sort of cycle. But how long... How long did it take to see that shift from hesitance and oh, fear of doing the wrong thing to um, being kind of out there and doing it? Well, we were working pretty intensively. They were um, they were engaged in this project full time for the summer, and I'd say yeah. it was probably two or three weeks. Yeah, that it took would be my guesstimate. Yeah, and I've heard numbers like that on on kind of uh, you know twenty and twenty four seven, but you know forty hour a week kinds of experiences. It's it's remarkable in any event how how short it is. We yeah. think that it's going to take forever for people to get to this place of, and it's it, it just seems to me that it's it's evidence that uh, people are dying for this and. Um, uh, the the words of uh, Jamie Kelleher still ring in my ears. Uh, we weren't sure you were serious about us doing what we wanted to do, and then we realized you were, and it was really cool. It seems to me that that's the that's the sentiment at the 
at the base of all of this. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So um, in in the book, we emphasized uh, certain soft skills, and the, the show is about soft skills, but you and I don't like that term in particular. But the, the book emphasized uh, some of the soft skills associated with coaching, things like noticing, listening, and questioning, or what uh, sometimes we call NLQ in our courses. And, and we've started to exchange the term soft for the term shift, as in shift skills. And I guess we mean a, a, a couple of things by that. But what are, what are soft or shift skills, and why are they important? Well, I guess I'd first comment that I, I think that framing of soft skills, particularly in an engineering education space, is very much in contrast to hard skills, right, which is sort of the discipline-specific content. You know, it's the stuff that's really quantifiable and that is easy for people to kind of wrap their brains around, so being able to write a program in a particular language or solve a particular kind of differential equation. And I think that if you think about the, the sort of language choice with soft skills, it's it's very much sort of dismissive language, right? It's sort of the squishy stuff, it's the easy stuff, and sort of implied in that is it's kind of stuff that people already know how to do. I think we like the sort of framing of, of shift skills uh, as opposed to soft skills, in part simply by the omission of soft, which is which has these sort of negative connotations. But also because these are really, I think, foundational skills that enable both um, your own individual growth and learning and also your ability to work effectively with others. So so when you look online and you find lists of soft skills, there are things like communication skills and teamwork and leadership and, you know, creative thinking and problem solving and, and critical thinking. I mean, they're the kinds of skills that get listed all the time on, you know, with employers and the sort of set of 21st century skills and, and so on. Uh, and I think what's important about them is that these are actually the skills that you have to use on a day-to-day basis, both to uh, be able to grow as a person and to be able to work effectively with others. Yeah, and I, I just had um, a local uh, art center director, Kristen Armstrong, on the show, and she was talking about a local uh, uh, survey of employers and what was the number one thing that they found lacking in the people that they were hiring their employees was was soft skills and they were pretty uh, vocal about it and of course um, I mean, one of the things that we reference a lot is this uh, I guess it was a, a bachelor's degree um, thesis at MIT about what mechanical engineers actually learned and where they learned it and what they ended up using on the job. Yeah, that's right. I think it was Kristen Wolf's uh, PhD thesis or, or a bachelor's thesis, and she basically found that there were all of these sort of quote unquote hard skills that that students learned in their undergraduate programs, and then they went out in the workplace and they discovered that for the most part, those hard skills were certainly occasionally important, but the things that were persistently used and really critical for innovation were much more the sort of interpersonal skills, the ability to to reflect and learn, the ability to do self directed learning those types of things that, that are sort of typically labeled as soft skills. Yeah, and when, when of course, employers say they want these things, but it's not, ex- it's not exactly clear uh, that, they're, that employers or, for that matter, and educators or anyone else, for, for that matter, is very articulate about what it is that they want. Why, why is it, I mean, maybe part of it is just the use of the term soft. We think of them as soft, so we don't, we don't think of them as particularly teachable, or we think of them as you said, everyone knows them. What what what's what what are what's the problem here? Well, I think some part of the problem actually comes back to you know when you talk about how nebulous those answers are, like communication skills. I think that. 
people, um, everyone does communicate on a daily basis. So all of us employ these skills daily. We just don't necessarily do so effectively, and I don't think we have a very clear framework of what we mean by them. And so um, communication skills, for example, what does that actually mean? Well, it means an enormous number of things. It has to do with how you listen to people, the, the kinds of questions you're able to ask people, the kinds of ways that you're able to make distinctions in, in what people say. Um, but that kind of decomposition, I don't think, is a decomposition that most people have in mind when you ask them about communication skills or when you ask them about creative thinking or when you ask them about teamwork, if you ask them to actually enumerate what does that mean, they don't have a very rigorous decomposition of it. So I think the lack of that um, sort of rigorous framework combined with the fact that they are all skills that on some level everyone has some of and everyone naturally has to use on a day-to-day basis, I think leads to an assumption that there isn't rigor to these skills as opposed to thinking there is rigor. I just don't happen to know what that rigor is. Yeah. And so I think some, you know, some of, um, you know, you and I got involved in this, uh, you know, in, in part following, we've been doing various kinds of training, but some of the training took a, sh- a shift itself after I was uh, blessed to go to Georgetown, um, leadership coaching certificate program and and I think you know one of the loci where some of these skills are made more rigorous is in the coaching community and and uh, a lot of that actually can be attributed to uh, a, a single uh, PhD uh, thesis um, by Fernando Flores uh, back in the 80s uh, at at Berkeley, it was a combination of um, speech acts philosophy and existential philosophy, trying to think about the the management organization of the future, and it those things brought a lot of rigor um, uh, about what's you know what communication really is about and and how to break it down in a more systematic way and in a way that actually is quite appealing to those who say they like rigor, like engineers. Yeah, I've, I've certainly found that that rigorous decomposition to be extremely helpful, and I, I really encourage anyone who's interested in that to to learn more about it because I think it's very very powerful. Yeah, and and so and and actually many of the uh, you know sometimes we um, use the distinction between what we call core shift skills, things like noticing, listening, and questioning. Many of the coaching skills are themselves core skills because they're central to any kind of um, understanding of self or others. Um, but many of the skills that people call out when they say communications could like people to make better presentations, we think of those as derivative. We think of the core as being um, sort of the, 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 um, the baseline set or the, the basis set from which other, other, we, we put together in other ways to, to, to do the other skills. What, how do how do you like to think about that, or how do you like to uh, talk about that distinction? Yeah, well, I, very, I very much like the sort of basis set type of um, type of analogy. I guess that's probably because I sort of come from an engineering and physics background, so that's, yep. that's something that, that resonates with me. But I think when you think about some of the things that we label as, as um, derivative skills, so for example, negotiation is something that we label as derivative skills, and there are certainly a set of really um, powerful ideas that are specific to negotiation, that if you've got those ideas in your, in your quiver, they're going to make you a much more effective negotiator. Yeah. But if you don't come to those, that, sort of, that sort of knowledge with also a set of these core skills, the ability to actually 
be aware of yourself and aware of the person that you're negotiating with, the ability to listen to that person that you're negotiating with, um, with a focus on them as opposed to uh, purely a focus on yourself, the ability to ask powerful questions. Those, those types of core skills, I think, enable you to apply some of the, the sort of frameworks around negotiation much more effectively. And that's, that's, I think, where this distinction that we make between core and derivative comes is that there are these core skills that yeah. end up getting employed in each of these domains, whether it's how I make a presentation or the yeah. way that I work on a team or the way that I negotiate with someone or the way that I resolve a conflict. All of those um, derivative skills require that you're able to notice both yourself and the, the people you're interacting with, you're present in the moment, that you can actually you know, employ sort of speech act, act ideas in order to make distinctions and in order to reframe things. Yeah. No, and that remind I remember going to uh I took training at uh, Harvard's uh, program on negotiation for I think it was a 3-day course and and I had had just I'd had the coaching training and so I got partnered up with a private equity guy and in the various simulations that we were in together we we cleaned up it was the and it was sort of the combination of of the 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 core shift skills with some of the the clarity around what it is you're negotiating as well as the distinction some of those distinctions that they the great distinctions they introduce in that course around negotiating and it was it was it just seemed very powerful but i i felt the power of the the shift skills and under you know and listening to the people we were negotiating with and what their interests were and how could we appeal to those interests in a way that was that was uh, quite Quite powerful, and much the same way that uh, actually come to the show, listening to the people I'm interviewing and what the what are they thinking about. Why don't we take Mark? Why don't we take? We've uh, we're kind of at the end of this segment. Why don't we take a break and then we'll come back after that break and um, maybe we'll talk a little bit about uh, the central what we think of as the central uh, shift skill of of uh, noticing. Sounds great. This is uh, Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, Mark Somerville from Olin College. Stay with us, and in the next segment, we'll talk about noticing as the core shift skill. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg 
at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. I'm your host, Dave Goldberg, and the second segment is sponsored by Three Joy Associates. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation that will help transform your organization at threejoy.com. And before the break, we were... Uh, we were with our guest, uh, Mark Somerville from Olin College, co-author of A Whole New Engineer and um, uh, Educator Extraordinaire. And uh, in the first segment, we were just talking about uh, shift skills and, and uh, what oftentimes are called soft skills and maybe some of the distinctions between the softness of the framing and a, and a more rigorous framing around uh, shift skills. Uh, we I think we want to do a little uh, audience participation in this, and, um, and where Mark, you and I do the um, the same exercise. And so, I'm going. If you're if you're listening to us now, I'm going to ask you to pull out a, a, a sheet of paper. It doesn't have to be any special kind of paper. If you're a journal and you have a journal journaler and you have journal in front of you, go ahead and open that up. Whatever, just a piece of paper and a pencil or pen, and. Um, and and I guess I want to I want to set this up in a particular way that um, we uh, this may seem uncomfortable or weird uh, the request I'm going to make but stick with us because there's a there's actually a pretty big point to this but the the, the question I I want our listeners to reflect on for fifteen twenty seconds is uh, the following what. Uh, and take a deep breath, get comfortable. Uh, and here's the request. So notice what you're thinking right now. What are you thinking right now? And what are you feeling in your body right now, this moment, as you're listening to the sound of my voice? What are you feeling emotionally right now? So feeling in your body, feeling emotionally, and thinking. What What do you notice right now about what you're thinking and feeling? And just reflect on that. For a moment, and then, and then jot that down. And and Mark and I are going to do that right now as well. So we're going to take a. I'm going to do it myself here. I'm going to grabbing my pencil, thinking about. what I'm thinking and I'm feeling what I'm feeling, taking a note or two about it. And take another few seconds and just jotting down a few notes about what I'm thinking or feeling bodily or in emotion. And then why don't we, why don't we come back and uh, Mark, I hope you were able to do that exercise. It uh, was hard for me what, since I didn't want the air to go too too dead for fear of losing some of our listeners. But um, as you did that today, Mark, what what did you notice about your noticing today? Well, I guess one of the things that I, I sort of you know I was thinking uh, you know it was interesting to me to to focus on both the the kind of thought components but also the sort of emotional and and sort of physical feeling components of how I was feeling and I guess what I I mean your question what did I notice about my noticing yeah. I think is an interesting one and I guess what I what I noticed about my noticing and this is going to sound incredibly circular what I noticed about my <laughs> noticing was how much more I noticed 
because I was trying to notice, which is to say, for example, that I, you know, I, I'm, I'm worried about our cat who's sick, and um, I was aware that I was worried about the cat before the act of trying to notice what I was noticing, or where I tried to notice my thoughts and, and feelings, but in noticing my thoughts and feelings, that I sort of became aware of the physical manifestations of that worry, right? And I, I wouldn't have noticed that um, had I not actually taken the step of, of being intentional about noticing. Yeah, beautiful. And beautiful noticing. I, I'm reflecting on my own noticing, and I, I guess I, I was having trouble. I noticed that I was having trouble getting out of my head because um, I was because I came into this exercise. We'd, I've never done anything like this on the radio program before, and I, I was worried about it. And and so I think that worry sort of got me in my head, well, is this going to work? And a lot of my thoughts were directed at whether or not doing this kind of thing on the radio will actually work or not. And so I, I did, although about halfway through, I noticed my breathing, and and that helped. I, I said, okay, yeah, I, I still have capacity for noticing other things than than the thoughts about um, failing well, and I guess I also reminded myself that this isn't the Oprah Winfrey show, so the million people aren't depending on 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 this experiment working. But I but I I did notice that I was in my head until I noticed my uh, my breathing. Yeah, I, mean, I think that that sort of um, ability to get out of your head. I think taking that sort of pause to notice is often very helpful in getting out of your head. Yeah, and um, and so I, I think one of the the things that's so interesting about this, and and uh, I remember when I um, first went to Georgetown to the, the leadership coaching program, the first day they sat us down in a room with 35 other student coaches, and they said, what do you notice? And uh, I, I actually, the prompt actually pissed me off. I was re- I was really angry because I, because here I, you know, I spent, uh, I don't know, 12 grand to come to this program and I said, okay, I'm here for some skills. And they're asking me, what am I noticing? And I thought it was a lot of, to be honest, I thought it was a lot of crap. And, and, um, and uh, until I realized that, um, came to realize over the course of many months, really, that, that noticing is, is, is central to our ability to uh, change as individuals. And in our, in our course, we often use the uh, famous R.D. Lang quote about, noticing which i'll i'll read uh and it's a bit of a word game but i think it gets at it actually gets at the point that you were just making mark the range of this is the quote from rd lang a psychiatrist in the last century the range of what we think and do is limited by what we fail to notice and because we fail to notice that we fail to notice there is little we can do to change until we notice how failing to notice shapes our thoughts and deeds Comment, Mark. Yeah, I, I think noticing is for for me. It is it is the central yeah. skill with regard to change. And I, I guess I, if I think about some sort of concrete examples of that, when I think about trying to to create a change within myself to sort of change how I approach some situation in the world, the the sort of first question always has to be what is what is the way that I'm actually thinking about this right now? How what are the ways that I am currently interacting with my daughter? And in what ways might I act, interact with her differently? And if I don't actually notice the ways that I interact with her or the ways that she interacts with me, and I'm not, and I can't articulate that, it's going to be very difficult to do something different. And by the same token, if I'm trying to think about how can I 
you know, affect change within an organization, I have to first notice what is what is going on within the organization. And so I think that that, that sort of, um, I mean, it sounds like a silly distinction. I mean, of course, you have to notice these things, but being intentional about it, I think, is, is very, very powerful. Yeah, and and if you think it's silly, you're where I was. I mean, it's like, well, of course, I, you know, and and actually, that's as you were saying before, Mark. That's some of the problem with soft skills is we all we all think we're masters of them because we bring something of them to the table every day. We have to, but there's oftentimes there's a lack of intention, and especially mm-hmm. with noticing. Uh, I, th- I like uh, Dan Siegel's uh, distinction that that we're oftentimes in narrative mind. We're often in our story about what life is about and or what work is about or what school is about whatever and we have this story and we're and we play that story and and the story is our truth until we notice that the story is actually just a story yeah that ability to step outside and say oh i notice i notice that i am telling the story about the way that things are in the world and i actually could change that story and tell a different story and therefore choose different actions i think that's a that's a really powerful Distinction, but it does it does sound silly until you actually really engage with it seriously and try to do it. Well, and and you know, and part of it, you know, we we do a lot of decomposition of stories and realize that certain elements of our stories are factual. That there are there are the speech act of assertions. There are some in our stories, but more often there are lots and lots of interpretations in our stories that could be changed if if those changes would better serve us, but. Until we notice that there are interpretations and there we're kind of locked into them, there's no real, real uh, possibility of change. It actually reminds me of, uh, of an early client. Uh, when I came out of the coaching program, I, I was talking to her about, without revealing a confidence, I was talking to her. I said, well, you know, that's, that's a really interesting story that you just told me. And she got angry at me. I was on the phone. And she said, that's not a story. That's the truth. And I think that's how we, I think that's how we approach our stories. Our stories are our truth, and and uh, then when we step back from them, we realize ah, there are, there is the possibility for change, and the possibility is if we actually change the story. Yeah, I think I think that distinction between fact and interpretation is is such a powerful distinction to be able to make because as soon as you can distinguish between the things that are actually objectively true out there in the world and then the stories that you're telling about those things you're you're able to do a lot of a lot of great stuff. I mean I always I always tell the story about um my sort of reframing of uh of my relationship with my wife as being a really important reframing. So my wife is someone who loves to try things out. She say does lots of hobbies, she keeps bees, she grows things in the garden, she does all these things and her approach to all of these things is one where she doesn't really believe in, you know, particularly using instructions that someone else has written or in, you know, sort of doing all kinds of research about how to do things. She just kind of looks around at stuff for a little while and then decides she has some better way to do it that she tries. And half the time that results in the bees dying or in the garden being covered with weeds or whatever. But, and this, for me, this was, um, this was something that just drove me crazy uh, because I'm someone who, when I'm doing something, I want to, like, do the research, understand exactly what the right ways are to do it. And, um, you know, once I've got that plan, execute on that plan. And so for a long time, I, you know, sort of looked at those facts and interpreted those facts as uh, my wife is just annoying and 
just stupid that she's not actually, you know, doing things the way that I would do them. And then I sort of subsequently realized that, in fact, or noticed that, in fact, she was getting a great deal of pleasure out of trying out these things that she had come up with, that it was, in fact, the act of sort of doing this bit of research and then saying, well, I might be able to come up with something more interesting. That was where a lot of the joy for her came from in, in doing these projects. And so I reframed um, those things as Babette being an experimental housewife, where sort of everything that she did was an, was an experiment to see what would happen, and that it was the actual act of experimenting that was important. And, now, and that, that sort of noticing that that was actually what was going on and being able to, to tell a different story about it, you know, and honestly, it probably changed, it probably saved our marriage. Um, but it certainly allows me to look at the things that she does, and instead of calling them stupid, call them an experiment that she's that she's enjoying doing. Yeah, beautiful. I and I I love when you tell that story in our class, and I love that you just told it now. Thanks for um, thanks for sharing that. And I, I I've got one more exercise for us on noticing, and this is one that we sometimes do in our coursework with uh, with faculty and students. Um, but it's called a pause practice, and you know, for people who do have a meditative practice or do yoga or have intentional breathing, it, it's nothing particularly new. For those who don't, it's actually uh, something fairly simple that can actually make a change. And so, we're going to set this up, and and you and I are going to both do it, and I'm going to ask you, Mark. Uh, what today's pause practice was like for you. but So the pause practice is this. We're just going to take three deep breaths together. Um, and uh, sometimes uh, when we do this in class, people close their eyes and um, come back into the room um, afterwards. Uh, but anyways, get comfortable in your chair. Put your feet flat on the floor. If, you, if you're a regular meditator, get in your meditative position. If not, just kind of get comfortable. Maybe put your hands on your on your lap or on your knees. And so let's, we're going to begin and we're just going to take three deep breaths together. I want people to notice their thoughts and feelings before and their thoughts and feelings after. So let's begin. So we'll take a deep breath in and we'll exhale. Breathe in. Exhale. Breathe in, and exhale, and breathe normally. And if you did close your eyes when you're ready, you can open them back up and come into the room. And um, mm-hmm. so, Mark, what? Um, how did that? What? What was your mind state like before, and what was it like after the pause practice? Well, you know, as I, as I said earlier, I'm. I'm have a number of things that I'm that I'm worrying about right now, and so uh, yeah. I guess I would say the transition in mind state was mostly a sort of quieting. Uh, and I, you know, Dave, I remember um, actually the first time that I that I did this class with you, and I was didn't know you were actually going to do the pause practice, and certainly coming at it from a sort of engineer's perspective, I was like, oh, great, <laughs> now. Um, but it's it is amazing to me how um, how effective it is just to take take those few minutes to to center yourself and and take a few breaths intentionally and to notice how you're feeling and to be able to to sort of become more present through through that. Yeah. And I and when I first heard about this, I immediately turned it to um, my. I, I tend to be impatient waiting in line, and even still. And 
when I first heard about the pause practice, I actually changed my story about waiting in line. So my story about waiting in line was that, well, I'm too busy for this and can't this idiot at the service counter hurry up and get to the important person standing in line or something like that kind of story. And I reframed uh, standing in line as the universe has just given me a moment to pause. And so now I actually am fairly intentional most times around standing in line that I've just been given a moment to pause and breathe and center myself. And um, uh, I, a number of people that have taken the class uh, have have done this and noticed it as uh, as just a nice way to get refreshed. And it doesn't even have to be three breaths. There's no magic number. Even just intentional breathing at any point can kind of get you back to some kind of center. Comment? Yeah, I, I I do the same thing in in grocery store lines now. I guess it's my main comment. <laughs> well, anyway, let's take another break. We'll talk a little bit more about noticing after the break, and then I'm going to shift to talking a little bit about uh, listening. So this is Big Beacon Radio with Mark uh, Somerville and Dave Goldberg. In the next segment, we want to talk a little bit more about noticing and talk about listening and questioning. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3 Joy website www.3joy.com today. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-472. 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And this final segment is sponsored by Big Beacon and Big Beacon Radio. Advertise on this show and reach some of the most committed reformers and transformers in education today. Right? To me, Dave Goldberg at deg at bigbeacon.org to reach that audience today. So uh, we're back with Mark Somerville of Olin College and co-author of A Whole New Engineer. And we've been talking about shift skills. Don't call them soft. uh, Call them shift skills. And we were talking about the centrality of uh, noticing. And let's just talk a little bit more about noticing. So, Mark, you know, since we've started doing this together and teaching these things uh, to help uh, help develop faculty to be to manage the polarity between expert and and uh, coach, um, how, how are you more intentional uh, on in using noticing or making noticing work for you in your own life? 
Well, I think one of the, the practices that I've adopted and I, that I've also really encouraged a lot of um, a lot of colleagues to adopt has been journaling. I, every morning will take half an hour to an hour to sit and basically um, do do some writing where a lot of that writing is about um, what do I notice about how I'm feeling, about what I'm thinking, what are the different ways that I might be able to, to think about that differently and tell different stories about that. And I, I find that practice to be a really helpful practice. In fact, I, you know, for a long time was um, associate dean for faculty development at Olin, and sort of every time we had a new faculty member come in, I would hand them a journal <laughs> and then sort of insist that they at least try it. And, you know, some of them have tried it and become uh, committed advocates of journaling, and others have tried it and decided it's not for them. But I think that the being intentional about creating space for noticing and trying to notice, I think, is is really valuable. Yeah, I, I, I you know, we were um, asked to um, write a, start a journal as part of our work at Georgetown. And we also, there were a number of other practices that I thought are, were things that can be imitated in the, in the academy. We, we had a journaling buddy, so we we journaled, but we talked about our journals with a particular person, and and um, we also had had a learning circle. And I, I think these, I think there's a social component to to change in higher ed that that is sort of beyond the scope of what we're talking about here. But I think that uh, the, the the noticing component, I find that you know, whenever I find myself in trouble or or um, I, things aren't going exactly the way I had planned or uh, that kind of stepping back and, okay, what's going on? What am I thinking, feeling? Um, you know, uh, there, uh, in the course of my own work with a coach and, and i I know what some of my old stories are and I can notice when some of them are coming back, um, and, um, you know, rearing their, um, the, dysfunctional heads a little bit and sort of kind of beat them back with my new story. So I, I, I just think there's a, it, it, it's really a valuable thing. Sometimes for me, my journal is, is kind of a mess. It's people think, Oh, I need to journal like you're, you're a, a 19th century a British uh, diarist or something like that. But I, I don't, my journal's got a lot of bullet points. It has actually quite a few sketches and pictures in it. Whatever helps me kind of get my arms around yep. the, the, the system. I think of it in terms of systems engineering, and I think of and I think of I think of uh, the narrative rewriting as kind of narrative engineering. It's like narrative design. All right, so what story? This story isn't working for me. What mm-hmm. what story still fits the facts that uh, fits my values and the things that I believe in that that will serve me better? And 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 a lot of times that in my journal that'll take the form of a bunch of pictures of like. Um, Almost like a mind map of the different concepts and how they're intersecting with each other and things like that. Yeah, I, I've got to agree. I wouldn't want anyone to uh, to sort of think that my journal represented a, uh, a complete synopsis of what was going on in my life. In fact, I'm not sure I'd want anyone else to look at it, but it's certainly a very helpful <laughs> tool for actually yeah. taking the time to, to notice. And, and so let's let's shift and talk a little bit about. Uh, um, about listening, and I guess listen, you know, listening's uh, this is one where we all think we're expert in it. We've all been listening, or so we think, since since birth. Um, and I guess I have two questions about: so why is listening as a shift skill so important? And in what ways are we are we good listeners or not good listeners? 
in, when, in kind of conventional listening? Well, I guess I'd say with regard to the importance of it, I think listening is, is critical if you are going to notice other people. Right? If you're, if you're, you can, it's possible to notice yourself um, without, well, certainly you have to listen to yourself on some level, but being able to listen and really listen to people around you, I think, is critical if you want to actually be able to work with them. And I guess one of the things that we emphasize in the course is the extent to which um, people often think that they are listening um, with a focus on the other person, but in fact, we often tend to listen through a uh, through a sort of filter or a lens of our our own experience, and and that in turn can really limit what both the experience of the person who's doing the talking and what the person who's doing the listening can actually hear. Yeah, and that distinction about listening to the person through um, trying to understand them from their own perspective versus listening to the person from our own perspective and what we want to hear is one of the distinctions that's made in coaching training. And rather than talk about it a lot, I think maybe the best way for us to kind of hop into that is for us to do it for um, a couple of minutes. Mark, if you're, if you're willing, I, I'd ask you to, and, and this is the kind of exercise we do in class, but maybe if you can tell me a little bit of a tell me a little bit of a story and I'm going to, the first time I listen to you, I'm going to listen to you um, from my own perspective, what your story means to me, what sometimes is called level one listening. And, um, and, uh, and then we'll, you'll try to tell me the same story and I'm going to listen to you at level two or listen to you to try to understand what, what's really important about the story to you. Is that, think we can do that on, uh, yeah, on air? Yeah, try that. Give it a shot. So, why don't, so Mark, what, let's start. And, and uh, what's the what's the most important thing for us to uh, talk about right now? Uh, well, I guess I, you know my daughter leaves for college tomorrow, and so we're, we've been sort of trying to get her ready to depart and trying to help her, um, you know, trying to connect with her in in sort of positive ways before she departs. And I will tell yeah. you. That challenging. Yeah, I remember the same thing. I remember when Max went off to uh, Northwestern uh, back, oh, it's gosh, it's been a long time already, and remember taking him and and uh, being scared and leaving a campus, and then when Zach went to uh, Wabash College, I remember taking him to campus and seeing a little bit too much drinking for my own taste and, and being really worried about it. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're certainly, um, I mean, I think well, we're, we're yeah, we're crazy worried. I think, and it's and I think it's been it's been challenging to also figure out sort of how to how to connect with her because I think on there's part of her that sort of wants to wants to really connect with us before leaving, and then also part of her that's really engaged and kind of pushing us away. So it's a uh, the social dynamic of it is is very. I mean, it's always complex dealing with a teenager, but this is this is sort of extra complex, I guess. Where where is she going to school? Remind me. Uh, she's going to Parsons down in New York. So oh, New York! School. Yeah, I remember visiting. Yep. Par- I remember visiting a bunch of New York sc- schools with, not with Zach, but with Max. We went to Columbia. We went to NYU. We went to a bunch of New York schools, and 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 New York's such a big place and kind of a scary place. That's got to worry you even a bunch yeah. more. Yeah, yeah for sure. Hey, so what else? Well, I guess I was thinking of this. Um, you know, we made this attempt. To, um, to connect, like she, she actually stays with a friend in Cambridge a lot of the time, and so we decided to go and stay in town for a week in the hopes of actually seeing more of her. And that was a, that was a bit of a disaster as well because um, we went in sort of thinking, okay, we're making this time to visit 
Charlotte. We're going to spend time seeing Charlotte. Charlotte's going to spend time seeing us. And I think Charlotte instead had the expectation that we were going to come into town and sort of be, it was going to be like a normal family where we were like in the same town that she was and she would sort of see us whenever she saw us. So we ended up spending a week, you know, staying in Somerville, uh, Massachusetts, and which was like an hour commute from work for me. Yeah. Um, basically not seeing Charlotte for the week and having Charlotte get mad at us about how much we expected to see her and us get mad at Charlotte for how little she was willing to see us. It was, yeah. so yeah, it was a tough week. And so let's, uh, let's, let's stop for then. And I actually, I'm having trouble listening to this story at level one because I so much want to listen to it at level two. And so, but let's, let's just debrief it, Mark. So I was attempting to listen at level one and relate, my own yep. experience to your experience and at, at what was your what was your experience of my listening to that story at level one well i mean i guess it it, it you know sort of a, as someone who's sort of aware of the distinction between level one and level two <laughs> i you know that i a lot of my experience was around thinking about kind of what your responses were to yeah. the things that i said so for example when it felt to me like when you asked where she was going to college and i told you new york you were sort of looking for some other thing that you could talk about, right? Yeah. So it was like, yeah. oh, great, New York. I can talk about New York. I can talk about New York, and, yeah. you know, that was kind of annoying. <laughs> <laughs> yep, <laughs> Because yep. I was like, look, Dave, I don't really want to hear about New York right now. There's much tougher stuff with regard to what my relationship is with my daughter going on, and it seems like you're just interested in relating to this to your own experience. Why don't we, why don't, let's do about a minute's worth of uh, level level two and see if we can get the distinction across to the audience. We just have a few minutes left, so let's go for about a minute, and then we'll we'll do the same thing. So see if you can tell the same story again, and I, this time I'll I'll actually really listen to you. Yeah, so, you know, as I said, we're, we're taking my daughter down to down to college tomorrow, and we've been trying really hard to, to connect with her before she goes, and I think it's been, it's been really hard because she's both wanting to connect with us and also wanting to to push us away, so it's a. Uh, it seems like we're just in conflict all the time. That sounds like that's fairly uh, difficult emotionally. What's the What's the feeling of that? Yeah, well, I mean, some part of it has to do with um, you know she's she's a teenage daughter. There's all kinds of you know, particularly I think there's a lot of pushing away of parents going on, and so that that hurts. And I think at the same time, there's you know fear about how. She, She's gonna, you know, wanting her to be okay when she's at at college, or she's going down to New York, which is, you know, certainly it's. I mean, it's not right. I mean, it's not that far away, but it's, um, you know, it's four hours from Boston, and it's, um, it's a big place. And so I think we're, you know, we're we're anxious about how she's doing, and at the same time, you know, maybe there's a part of us that feels bad about how relieved we'll be when she gets down there. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, hell dealing with. Her sort of like she's so stressed out and and kind of that stress tends to manifest yeah. as, as anger. So yeah, let's why don't we just why don't we just cut it there? And we didn't go as as long, but what was I? And I actually remained silent. But what was your experience of I was I was trying to listen to you and understand you, not find something to talk about as I would in level one. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it, it's. I think the distinction between level one and level two is the extent to which in level two you're trying to create space and really allow the other person to, you know, ask questions that allow the other person to sort of 
more deeply express what their experiences and what their feelings are. And certainly yeah. that was my that was my experience with the the second time was being able to, you know, I feel like say some of the things that were harder about it. Yeah, and it's interesting. It's it's not that either one of these is bad. One's very, uh, really part all part almost all parties are driven by level one listening. It's just a lot of fun to kick things back and forth sometimes. So, but when somebody needs to be understood, the level two is is helps you take it there. Well, uh, Mark, this has been this has just been so much fun to talk about stuff that we care so deeply about. But we're at the end of the show. Where can people find out more about uh, your, about Olin and about your work at Olin and your uh, to engage you as a speaker and consultant. Well, I'm, my email address is mark.somerville at olin.edu, and um, you're welcome to visit the Olin webpage or just contact me via email. Mark, thanks thanks again for joining us. We'll get you on the show again. I think this uh, doing these shift skills on the air, maybe we can do a few more of them uh, sometime if you'll come sure. back on the That'd show. Be great, Dave. Great. Okay. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education uh, with Dave Goldberg. Special thanks to our guest, Mark Somerville at Olin College. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, as we continue our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.